0: Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. At LRN,
1: the most crucial factor we've identified in our years of research and work with thousands of organizations worldwide is that a values-based approach to governance is crucial. Being values-based builds and sustains ethical culture, and that's the essential element of an effective ethics and compliance program. But what does that look like in a world that continues to be disrupted by the COVID crisis and the aftermath of racial and political unrest. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of season seven of LRN's Principled Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Frank Divers, Director of Thought Leadership and Best Practices within LRN's advisory group. Today, I'm joined by Forrest Deegan, Vice President of Ethics and Compliance for Victoria's Secret and lecturer in law at the University of Chicago Law School. We're going to be talking about how values can sustain ethical performance and even allow organizations to excel in the face of change and adversity. We're going to draw on insights from our 2022 edition of LRN's annual Ethics and Compliance Program Effectiveness Report and on Forrest's long experience in the retail industry in particular. Before coming to Victoria's Secret, Forrest spent two decades in ethics and compliance, including as Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer for Abercrombie & Fitch. So Forrest, thank you very much for coming on the Principled Podcast, and let's jump right in. Thank
2: you, Susan. It's a a pleasure to connect with you again.
1: The same. It's always good to connect with you. Forrest, we've had some interesting discussions preparing for this podcast about LRN's 2022 Ethics and Compliance Effectiveness Report. What surprised you and what resonated the most, given our findings, particularly with your experience in the retail industry throughout the ongoing pandemic crisis? I'll start
2: with what resonated the most. Preliminary Matter, really enjoyed reading through kind of the insights that were collected here. Reading through it, I start with the resonation because... There are a number of charts that go through the concerns that folks identified in the early days of the pandemic about the challenges of transitioning to a hybrid or remote model with respect to their controls, with respect to their ability to audit and and to support the programs. This comes across in both some of the stats around the activities they thought would be of concern, and then what they actually worked on, and then looking at kind of how training actually was supported, right, where obviously people weren't able to travel, people weren't able to use all of their old tricks in this new time. And so starting off, like seeing the fears and the concerns that folks were raising in 2020, and that list itself was pretty fulsome and reminded me what it was like in the retail space with all of the uncertainty that came in the spring of 2020, right, with the closure of the, of the majority of all stores, at least temporarily in the U.S., you know, I remember the day we were kicked out of our, our home office. I'm sure everybody has a similar recollection to mid-March, walking out with your computer in your bag and not knowing when you'd be back. This brought back some of that uncertainty that resonated with me but what also resonated with me was the introduction around values and how that programs that leaned in to their values did well right and this idea that kind of everybody took on new and different obligations with the pandemic with a time of crisis you know a time of crisis can be a time of unification i certainly saw that to be the case you know i remember that leaders at my company were You know, voluntarily take pay cuts, right? To make sure that folks in the staff could stay on so that we could avoid layoffs. There was an insistence on treating folks equitably within, right? So, really living your values in those moments of crisis. This report speaks to both those fears and some of the solutions that
1: came out of it. That's such an impactful example because there's no rule that says executives had to give up pay or benefits to keep other people employed. And we actually saw a lot of examples like that last year and they're documented in last year's report. And it's very heartening from LRN's point of view because we've been saying for years that values work better than rules as the basis for a program and to motivate people to do the right thing. Last year's report and this year's report really proved that. I look at stats like on page seven of the report that 82% of the programs we surveyed this year said that their ethical culture was stronger as a result of their experience during the pandemic. And you just talked about it too that people came together in the crisis, but they relied on their values as the way to get through it.
2: And so the, the second part of your question was around things that might have surprised me in here. And honestly, the stat you just pulled about the 82% feeling ethical culture was stronger. That one surprised me a bit because it was, you know, 2021, not a 2020 stat. You know, in fact, the number went up, it seems like, from the prior year's version of the report, where it was 79% the prior year, this year's 82% uh, that their ethical culture was stronger as a result of experiences coping with the crisis. So that was something that surprised me, that that sentiment not only continued, but seemed to increase a bit. Because, you know, we've all heard about and all have felt the fatigue in the past year as the uncertainty has continued, as we've continued to have to be flexible in our approach. Yes.
1: Forrest, what you said was very impactful because going back to what we said before, one of the key findings on page seven is that 82% of our nearly 1,200 respondents worldwide reported that their ethical culture became stronger during the pandemic rather than weaker. And we've been saying for years at LRN that values make much more impact than rules, and that's living proof. So I'd like your further thoughts on that, if I may.
2: With respect to the second part of your prior question about what surprised me with respect to the study, I would have to say that that very stat, you know, that 82% of the respondents last time felt that ethical culture was stronger as a result of the experiences, that growth, you know, that sentiment was an increase, improvement from the prior year. That surprised me a bit because, you know, we've heard so much about and felt so much of the fatigue as the uncertainty has continued, as the need to adjust our approach and our responses has just continued onward. I was pleasantly surprised to see that, you know, The prior version of this report had shown 79% felt that the crisis was bringing folks to their ethics and compliance program in a stronger way. To see that go from 79 to 82, a small improvement, but you're already really high to begin with. I was pleasantly surprised to see that in here. And honestly, it does make sense with respect to that ongoing uncertainty that you do need to lean upon kind of those core values to continue to navigate. You know, you really have to love the question, not the answer, right? When it comes to a challenge of this size, and that is constantly evolving.
1: I love that way of putting it, that you have to love the question, not the answer. And we were frankly surprised last year, and then pleasantly surprised this year, that our results confirmed what we saw before. And I was just looking at the chart on page 33 that talks about ENC resources and standing. And you mentioned that people were understandably anxious at the outset of the pandemic as to how programs would do and whether they would have resources or whether there would be widespread misconduct or circumventing of processes. And our results show that that didn't happen. And also that ENC programs have come out strong and well-resourced.
2: Just those stats on 33 surprised me a lot of different ways. You know, the first chart talking about, you know, do ethics compliance functions feel they have the sufficient resources and authority? Some of your respondents are at the 95% level, 92% level, even for your medium impact programs and even the lowest impact were at 67%. Those are really high scores. Those are really high scores. And that I think that's right. I think that is a, a reason for optimism right now with respect to our ability to respond as companies right if there is that availability of resources but also you know the buy-in with leadership and there's another stat there that i also was surprised by how strong the respondents were around access to data right and that the you know the highest impact programs were 89 percent of them felt that they had appropriate access to data sources in the org whether it was hr audit it infosec in order to do their work and i think data component there is so critical and reflects buy-in from not just you know leadership your tone at the top right portion but also from your cross-functional partners right access to the data can really help drive improvements uh, yes in the day-to-day operation of the program but also and your ability to support and inform cross-functionally. And so I think those those things are married together, right? The access to information, you know, it's a great example of something where it's not just resources, right? It's not just dollars and cents. It's also that buy-in as reflected through real collaboration and through real partnership.
1: I agree with you. And also, it's an affirmation that programs have gone from being something the legal department does, or perhaps the legal and ethics and compliance does, to something that the whole company does, every one of us. And that's a really positive development. I think
2: that's right. You know, I've been in-house for a decade now, was in private practice for a decade before that, you know, dealing with the corporate compliance space and, and really seeing an evolution in terms of scope and approach during that time. And so things were, you know, we already had increasing expectations and an accelerating space when it came to this field, both due to our internal stakeholders, our boards, obviously, you know, regulators like DOJ, but also customers, NGOs, like they keep ratcheting up the expectations and, and corporate compliance has proven to be a, a responsive and reliable partner, and so this is when you get into what I call the curse of competence, right? If you execute effectively, you're going to be asked to do more. I do think this has been a real opportunity and awakening to the valuation of controls and monitoring, and our ability as professionals to not just focus on the have tos, right, those rules that we talked about at the top, but also the want tos, right, that corporate purpose. The values associated with it. You know, I believe corporate compliance offers the opportunity to marry the want to and the have to. And frankly, that's the only way it works really well, right? Is if people understand how those rules, how those requirements tie back to why they want to be at the company, what they're hoping to accomplish with respect to company values.
1: Forrest, I want to talk a bit more about the connection between values and making programs more accessible and employee-focused. That's another theme in the report, and we see progress, and we see best practices emerging, but I would argue that they need to emerge much more strongly and quickly. But before we go there, take us back a little bit to values and the board, and how senior leaders talk about values when you demystify them. And Bring people into the program with the want tos as well as the must haves? For
2: me, you know, the stats around accessibility, they make
1: a ton of sense in terms
2: of your high performing programs are going to be focused on making the documents available, making them searchable, simplifying where possible, you know, translating into the languages that your employees leverage, right? To me, those actions are are really table stakes with respect to an effective program and the thoughtfulness and the idea of keeping the end user in mind you know that sentiment which which drives accessibility i think is communicated to your employees right when they see that when they have the access to it where the information is in a logical place where it's stored where the other corporate documents or the other you know FAQs guidance they look for from the company for an IT issue or for you know a TNE report if the guidance documents around your compliance program are as accessible if not more accessible i think that alone sends a message i do think that the percentages around those that are focusing on accessibility You know, they were still right around the 50% mark. I think those numbers need to go up. I also think that to really drive home your value system and to demystify a program and what it means to act with integrity, not only do you have to make the documents accessible, you've also got to work on making them actionable, right? You need guidance that is relevant and actionable. You can have a clear rule that is simple to understand, but If it is unclear how to operationalize that or how it deals, you know, how it kind of is imported into the day-to-day running of the business, then it's just words on a page. Maybe they can get to the page easier now, but they still can't use it effectively. And so I think that those two concepts, accessibility and utility, are really what drive an ability to demystify what your program is about.
1: If I hear you correctly, you are also saying that it reflects respect for employees. Yes.
2: I think that's so important. I'm just passionate about that idea that you can send messages, right? How you present your information can tell a lot about what the company values and making it accessible, including, you know, incorporating your language from your corporate purpose, your value statements, how your CEO talks on a day-to-day basis, if those, I guess hooks are appropriately cascaded through your ethics and compliance messaging, it's clear to everyone in the organization that these are priorities, consistent with how we talk about hitting our numbers for the year, or consistent with ta- talking about our expansion for the year. If we're using the same language and if it rolls up in the same way, that's how you ensure it is embedded.
1: I completely agree with you. It's tempting to want to spend more time in this area because we're both passionate about it, but I'll just close it out by saying that only 25% of the organizations we surveyed this year reported that they were using mobile apps. And when you think back on last year and how people were fighting for bandwidth at home and may have had children using the computer and bandwidth to take their classes, We've seen some great examples of how companies like Dell were able to switch big elements of their program to mobile apps, thus easing the burden on employees. And I hope we see some more of that. But just looking forward now, as we draw to an end, we saw a lot of innovation and pivoting in the last year, yet we also saw some areas that lag behind where people in the ethics and compliance community haven't perhaps revised their training curriculum as quickly as you might expect or made some of the other innovations like mobile apps. First, why do you think that is? And secondly, what do you see happening in the next couple of years in terms of best practices?
2: The use of mobile devices and investing in making your program documents, your governance materials accessible and and your training included therein, I was surprised at that 25% number. But as I thought about that particular number and kind of what's next, it made sense because, you know, I'm reminded of my own mindset in 2020 and the idea that we didn't know how long this is going to last, right? And so I'm confident when it comes to some of the training activities, some of the new technology investments, the answers that you've got for the most recent running of the survey i think they reflect everybody's hope right and their investment in that that first year year and a half of the pandemic that we can ride this out right we don't have to start over again with the entirety of our program here and i think that folks by now will have come to the realization that look we're not going to get back to a place where everybody is in the office on the same system during the same hours of the day right and so how does our program have to adjust in this you know whether it's remote or hybrid certainly transitional time how do we meet our people where they are and where they're likely going to be for the time being so i do think your your answers will change going forward when it comes to investments in mobile when it comes to investments in you know audit processes and controls that take into account the lack of that ability to look over the shoulder, the lack of the ability to rely on tribal knowledge. I think that's going to be the future for all of us. The other thing that looking at kind of, you know, where the investments were and where they'll go next, that really spoke to me was the idea there was value in having a system in place, right? I think back again to 2020 and, and those folks that did not have systems in place that relied upon those in person trainings or audits or, or what have you they did have to start from scratch right when it came to how do i do this this job or demonstrate this control in a remote way whereas if you had an up and running third party risk management system right you would have to make changes you'd have to make tweaks to your to, to your risks and what they counted for based upon you know financial instability operational constraints but you were working from something right you were able to make adjustments and not start over and so i think that contrast also i think will serve programs well because the utility of of these systems i think has been revalued by companies because they see how capable they were of pivoting in ways that some of the more informal methods just were not
1: To give an example of what I think you're saying, it's interesting to me that in the past, a lot of top programs relied tremendously on in-person training, and I get it that in-person training is more effective in a lot of ways. It makes connections and it encourages questions, but people may have neglected online training as a result. I'm reminded of one CECO who used to describe it as sheep dip training. And as you point out, we are where we are, and we're not going back to two years ago. So I think there's a level of innovation that we're going to see in areas like training, for example, making it shorter, using more video, mobile-friendly, more tailored to employee roles in the company. And that will happen because people have come to realize that they have to rely on online training and their systems, and the systems have to be good.
2: I'm glad you brought up the idea of training and the different types that are available in an online way. You know, a stat that isn't in here is is the idea of shorter training, right? And I think that as we need to put more arrows in the quiver of online training, of remote accessible training, that innovation is going to continue and that not only will training get shorter and more customized but the location of it right the availability of you know the rule or the lesson right where the potential action could be if you've got to approve the invoice the guidance for that should be baked into the system same thing with if you have to approve the use of a new vendor right the expectations of the company they need to be right there they need to be tied directly to the process itself. I think, again, that works towards the idea of embedding the rules and the system into your actual day-to-day activity.
1: Very well put. And you're talking about more of a just-in-time approach and that emphasis on accessibility for people. I could have this conversation all day, and there are so many other areas in our current program effectiveness report that we haven't had a chance to talk about but I know you have other things to do. And I really appreciate your spending the time with us today, Forrest.
2: It's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to do a deep dive into the report. I love the quote from page six, right? About the idea of having a couple of core values translated into understood behaviors, right? Can be more potent and powerful than a thousand rules, right? I love that cascade down because I think that is the approach that works. And when you couple that approach, which requires consistent communication, right? When you couple that with the ability to measure response, the ability to track change behavior, that's how you win with respect to these. Clear communication and standards that are transparent and that people are held accountable to.
1: Thank you, Forrest. Talking with you about the Program Effectiveness Report is truly a pleasure. Before we leave the podcast and I close it out, was there anything else you wanted to talk about or any other insight that you wanted to share?
2: I mean, it's always dangerous to ask me that question, but if you don't mind, there was one other kind of collection of of stats that really spoke to me just because I think that they inform one another, right? And so I think it was on page eleven. There's kind of a number of stats around what top-ranked programs are doing. You know, one was almost three times anticipate greater engagement by the boards of directors and almost two times expect more regular engagement by leadership, right? So there's an expectation that, you know, the board and leadership are engaged with the program. And on that same page, it talks about having policies that are simplified and streamlined and having training that is interactive and web-based. And to me, you know, one leads to the other, right? If you have a program that is simpler to understand and has been streamlined and has been built in a way to make it interactive, it is going to be easier to support leadership engagement and the board of director buy-in. If you are giving leaders simpler rules that resonate and reflect the reality of the business, you're going to obtain that buy-in in a natural manner. And if you're able to talk about the program and if they're able to talk about that program and have that engagement, then that drives that next level right, with the board of directors. And so I think you have to develop a virtuous cycle here of building a program that's based on the reality of your business, that resonates with the values of the company and what the company's priorities are, which will allow your business leaders in talking about those business priorities to use the same language, to pull the same levers when it comes to their engagement with your ethics and compliance program. It really has to be considered part of that whole in order to
1: work. I love how you articulated the concept of the virtuous circle between the values, the simplified employee facing messages and mechanisms. And then making it easier and more natural for the leadership to talk about key messages.
2: That really is the heart of demystifying your program, right? You've got to make it based in your reality and you've got to use the language of leadership in order to get there. And if, if you're doing that, you will have your buy in at the top and in the middle and it can drive it all the way down.
1: Well, that's a great note to end on, Forrest. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And thank you. Uh, for our listeners for joining us for another insightful conversation. My name is Susan Frank-Divers, and we'll see you next time on The Principled Podcast by LRN.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning, ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.